apart if we're not, you know, if we're not taking action on it daily. And so it really truly is culture change. And when I talk to other leaders of other organizations, it's not about rolling out, you know, big, expensive, fancy wellness programs. That's great if you have the money to do that, right? But what you'll see, and there's been a lot of articles written that like, you know, wellness programs don't work, wellness programs that fail, wellness. And and the reason is, is because you have to step back and you have to look at the culture and you have to look at the... Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Jen Fisher. Jen, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. So tell us what you get to do at work. Yeah, so I am the chief well-being officer for the Deloitte U.S. firm, which uh, means a lot of things, but it means that I you know, spend my days working on, you know, strategy, tools, resources, programs to really empower all of Deloitte's people to take care of themselves and to be at their best every single day in both work and in life, because we, you know, we now know, (laughs) I don't know why we didn't know this before, but we now know that, you know, the way you are in life is the way you show up at work. And so really helping our people take care of themselves in, in all aspects of of their life, body, mind, purpose, and their financial health as well. That's great. And and how long ago did the new book come out? Or I guess Actually, it's not officially out, is it? It's not officially out. Yeah, it, it publishes June 29th. So two exactly two weeks from today. So uh, I'm a real audiobook nerd. And I'm, I'm always I always have questions for authors because I'm about 70%. So it'll be an audio book, by the way. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> I'm about 70% the way through my first book. Um, About how long do you think the process took you? You know, it's interesting the way that it evolved because my co-author and I didn't actually set out to write a book on this topic. We set out to give a presentation at the Work Human Conference in uh, 2019 and on the same topic. And as a result of that presentation, we were actually approached by uh, a publisher. And she asked if we had thought of writing a book on this topic. And we were like, no, not really. <laughs> you know, but we exchanged business cards and we kind of went back to life and work and things got busy. And about three months later, she sent us an email and she was like, hey, just checking in. You know, are you guys considering writing a book on this topic? And so An and I got together and we were like, well, you know, maybe this is the universe talking to us and telling us that, you know, we need to write a book on this topic. And so we made the decision to write the book. And about, I don't know, four months later, you know, the global coronavirus pandemic hit, which was fascinating because the book is relationships at work and why having meaningful relationships at work is overall good for the the worker, the workforce, and the employer. And we talk a lot about technology and the impact that technology has had on our ability to develop meaningful relationships. And so, you know, we spent the better part of, you know, the 15, you know, or 13 or months, 13 or so months during the pandemic writing a book about relationships at work when 
all we had to like you know, have relationships was actually our technology. And so it was a really, I I mean, I think everything, you know, in some ways happens for a reason, right? The timing of it wasn't what we expected or planned. But I would say from start to finish, it took us about, I would say, 18 to 20 months. I mean, it it took a while. Yeah. And I think I think if somebody had told me what went what goes into writing a book before I said yes or before I might I might have actually said no. So I'm glad I had no idea. So I'm interested and 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 give people a little bit of a, a preview of your podcast as well. Yeah, so I'm the host of the Work Well podcast and we talk about all things related to well-being and well-being at work. And so I speak with mostly external experts about you know, topics from, you know, anything from, you know, sleep to purpose and meaning to taking time off and disconnecting from work to, you know, you kind of pick, you know, nutrition and food and pick your favorite topic under the umbrella of human health and well-being. Talk a lot about mental health, emotional agility, those types of things. So it'd be great if, if people tune in, if you have an interest in learning how to, you know, be well and be well at work. Uh-huh. So uh, it's it's obviously pretty pretty great timing to be having the book come out where it's become such a such a forefront. So I I, I commend you on having a great crystal ball of knowing when to <laughs> when to have this stuff come out. I, I wish I could take credit. I'll take it, but I you know <laughs> we just got lucky. I think. Yeah. Well, um, about how many employees does... 60,000 in the U.S. And then we have a pretty significant workforce that is located in India, which takes us to about 120,000, which is considered our our entire U.S. workforce. Okay. When you think about... Well, I'm, I'm interested in this. Slightly off topic, maybe, maybe not. Not too many people stay at companies for a long time these days. And this is the same question. We had this great woman from Adobe on last week who... Also, like yourself, just past 20 years at the same organization, much less common. What do you think that Deloitte has done right to be able to to keep you there when when there's obviously opportunities to go elsewhere? Yeah, it's a great question. And so, you know, I I often get the question about my role as chief well-being officer because it's a it's a very uncommon role. Thankfully, it is becoming more common. I think that's something that perhaps we have, we do have the pandemic to thank for because, you know, employee well-being has kind of shifted front and center. But for, but for me, so I, I didn't start in the well-being space. My, my background is in business management and marketing, and I have a minor in exercise physiology just because I've been always, always been confused my whole life as to what I, like who I really wanted to be and what I really wanted to do. But I think the greatest thing about Deloitte and my role as chief well-being officer is even though it's a huge organization, it's very entrepreneurial in spirit. And so, you know, there's lots of opportunity to move around and to do different things and to try new things and to learn new things. And, and, and quite frankly, if you have a good idea that is good for the organization and good for its people, we're, you know, we're all ears. And, and that aligns with my story as chief wellbeing officer. It wasn't like, you know, I mean, it, it actually kind of came up out of a, a personal really personal experience of mine of experiencing burnout about six and a half years ago. And you're having to take time off from work and get well, both physically and, you know, mentally and emotionally from that. And actually coming back and, and really almost resigning from the organization because I became very passionate about wanting to help others 
not get to where I got and not, you know, not accept that burnout is the price that we pay for success. And I have to give Ariana Huffington credit for, for that line, because it's not mine. But you know, and, and when I went to resign to my leader at the time, she was like, you know, you're not leaving, which kind of threw me for a loop, because I think also a lot of the things that you read in leadership books is like, you know, usually when somebody has made up their decision to leave an organization, you can only keep them for a couple more months, right? Like, <laughs> so she was like, you're not leaving. And she was like, you know, cause I told her what I wanted to do. And she was like, well, if you need that, then everybody else at Deloitte needs it too. So go back to where you came from, put together your business case, and then, you know, go and like start having conversations with leadership and see if you can, you know, if you can make this happen here at Deloitte. And so that's the kind of example of like, what's kept me for so long. Every time my interest has changed, there's always been kind of a next opportunity for me to try something different and for me to do something different. And it's an organization that cares deeply about its people. I mean, you know, we're an accounting and consulting firm and certainly, you know, accounting and consulting firms historically aren't, you know, known for, you know, being, you know, like super amazing and caring about their people, but they really are, you know, I mean, I, it's almost a myth. Like it, my experience and so many of my colleagues experiences, like you just have to lean in and the relationship piece is huge, right? Like that's what we're, we are an organization made up of people. We don't sell a product. <laughs> you know, we go to market with our clients to solve their most complex problems. And if we don't have deep, meaningful relationships, and if we don't have a culture that supports our people and really empowers them to take care of themselves, we're, we're sub-optimizing our business. And, and, and I think what's exciting to me is that is the human part, right? Like it's always, it's always evolving because it's about humans, right? It's not about machines. It's not about technology. It's not about a product. It's, it's about the people and how do you continue to innovate around the people? And I just find that really exciting. <laughs> mm, fun. Well, can you tell us one of your favorite stories from the book? One of my favorite stories from the book. Let's see. I don't know that I would say it's like a favorite story because it's a it's a little bit it exposes me a little bit, but it is probably one of the most meaningful stories from the book. I guess there's two. I guess my favorite story from the book is that my co-author and I, you know, the book is about relationships and the way that we met and the way that we got to know each other and got close is through a mutual mentor of ours, right? And so it's one of those, you know, like we probably would have never met if it wasn't for this person. So it's kind of like six degrees of separation. And so we talk about that in the book. But I think, you know, for me, the most powerful story in the book and part of the inspiration for my passion around relationships at work and, you know, writing this book is that there was a time in my career early on when I became a, you know, a team leader, a people leader where, I didn't value relationships. I believe that we went to work <laughs> to get tasks done. And I was truly just a taskmaster. And, you know, everybody was there to do a job. We do our jobs, you know, and we got paid and that was it. And, you know, and, and I had a, a person on my team come to me after about a year of leading the team and tell me that she had accepted another role inside of Deloitte and that she was leaving my team. And I asked her why. And she, you know, was very kind of open and honest with me and said, well, you know, you never really like invested in getting to know me as a person. You don't really know what I 
like to do, what I don't like to do, you know, what my, like, what my personal life is, what my, you know, like the things that matter to me in my life, the things that light me up, things that give me energy. Like you never asked any of those questions. And that's not really that even though you're admired and celebrated in the organization for getting stuff done, like you didn't really invest in the people that work for you. And I wish at the time that my response had been a little bit more emotionally intelligent, (laughs) but it wasn't, it was, it was, you know, it was protective of myself defensive. Right. And it wasn't until probably 18 months or almost two years later after I'd gone through my own burnout, because, you know, being a taskmaster doesn't work for anyone, not for the people that work for you and not for yourself either, you know, because you're, you're not a machine and neither are they. And going through my own burnout and really kind of redefining for myself what I wanted my life and my work to look like, that her words came back to me. And at that moment really meant something. And I sent her a message to tell her that like, hey, I know I know it's taken me 18 months because I'm slow (laughs) to figure this out and to really truly understand what you said. But now I understand. And it has forever changed me as a person and as a leader and how I view the value and the importance of of meaningful relationships at work and, and how they do truly have a positive impact on the work that we do and our own well-being and, and therefore the bottom line of an organization. And so I reached out to her and, and we remain friends to this day. So the, the story has a happy ending. And so I don't know that I would say that that's my favorite story, but it's certainly the most powerful story. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You know, it makes me wonder... I'm interested in your insights. You know, 120,000 people, that's that's a lot of folks to try to help, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, on this show, we have a lot of, you know, we have a lot of founders, a lot of CEOs listening, a lot of like investment company managers. And, you know, obviously good leadership starts at home. Like, you know, the the, the three most important things to leadership, example, example, and example, right? But, <laughs> but you know, even if you're doing this, with your direct reports and and you're helping make sure they do it with their direct reports, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's getting right down to the front lines. Or if you're an investor, you know, like you're, you know, we're looking at our at Greystoke Investments, we're looking at some hospitality businesses and some assisted living businesses and stuff that have, you know, staff, right, in these real estate asset classes. And it could be very easy for for us to not know, are those people who are actually interacting with our customers, like, you know, the front lines of our company, do they actually feel that or not? What What are some of like the guidelines for helping like get the water to the end of the row? Like it's not just something that gets said by the leadership of the company, but it gets lived by the whole business. Yeah. So it really, I mean, it, it, it was very important to me when I started in this role about five and a half years ago. Number one, it takes time, <laughs> right? Like it, this is this is not you know a short term play. Can you see some short term results? Absolutely, but this is culture change, and it you know it kind of requires in a lot of ways, you know, you know, daily upkeep, right? Like our just like our own personal well being will fall apart if we're not, you know, if we're not taking action on it daily. And so it really truly is culture change. And when I talk to other leaders of other organizations, it's not about rolling out, you know, big, expensive, fancy wellness programs. That's great if you have the money to do that, right? But 
what you'll see, and there's been a lot of articles written that like, you know, wellness programs don't work, wellness programs that fail, wellness. And, and the reason is, is because you have to step back and you have to look at the culture and you have to look at the cultural norms that, you know, either people are leaders and others are bringing into the organization with them, or if it's an older organization that have been around for many years, and they might have been around for really good reasons at the time, right? Like they served the organization at the time, but so much has changed in the way that we work, our expectations. I mean, just everything about business and culture has changed. And a lot of those norms have not and behaviors have not changed along with it because as human beings we're bad at change we're just you know like it's scary it's uncomfortable we don't know how to do it so we you know just say well this is the way it's always been done so we're going to keep doing it this way and so you have to get real like you have to step back and you have to say what are the things going on in our culture what are the behaviors and the norms that are keeping people from taking advantage of what we're offering them or keeping people from behaving in a different way? Do they not feel psychologically safe? Do they not feel like they will be, feel supported? Do they feel like in some way it's going to hold them back in their career because they're behaving or doing things differently from the way that it's always been done or the way you know that that everybody else around them does it? And so leadership needs to do more than just talk. I mean, they need to like, op- they need to talk, but they also need to very openly and directly show how they're walking the talk. And then they need to set expectations for everybody, you know, for all people leaders around them. Like you need to set, you know, it needs to be in their goals. They need to be, you know, it needs to be part of the performance management. It's not a carrot and a stick, right? It's, it's really, you know, people, when people feel better (laughs) and they feel supported and they feel like they're in a safer environment, they're going to perform better. So like all boats rise in this, right? It's not like, okay, like if you don't do this, you know, we're going to hit you over the head with it. It's really like, we want you to take better care of yourself because if you take better care of yourself, you're going to show up better. You're going to treat your people better. You're going to treat your clients better. You're going to have more creative and innovative. Talk about innovation. I mean, you can't innovate if you're exhausted, eating like crap, not moving. I mean, like innovation just doesn't happen, right? (laughs) It's stagnant. (laughs) And so, but you have to also make it personal. Like you have to make it like people need to define it for themselves, right? Like what is it that matters most to me and, and create a framework that allows, that allows for that, that helps give them structure, but also allows for the flexibility for each person to kind of execute or empowers each person to execute that in a way that matters most to them. So that, you know, one person's goal isn't more important. Like if I want to train for a marathon and you want to learn to knit, you know, mine isn't more important than yours, but it has equal footing, right? And those are just, you know, two examples, but it could be infinite number of examples, right? So you have to, I mean, you have to make it part of the culture. You have, you do, I mean, as much as I actually struggled with making part of making it part of performance management, because I was like, I don't really want to measure people on it, because then it's going to feel like something that they have to do. But the truth is, is like, when we have to, like, when we're measured on something, we do it. (laughs) And that's just the reality of it, right? And so, and then you have to kind of make it part of every touch point, like meaningful touch point or milestone with your workforce, right? So when they're coming into the workplace, like what does onboarding look like? And how are, you know, how is it well-being embedded into that? What is each like career milestone or promotion? And then what we're looking at at Deloitte, which is kind of like our next innovative thing is well-being in the flow of work. And so how do we empower people either through the use of technology or 
or the way that we actually design work itself to bring well-being into the like design it into the day as opposed to having it be like something I do after work or a layer on top or before work when I maybe have time and I'm not too exhausted. But how do we build it into like kind of those micro moments throughout the day where it not only permissions people, but that it's just kind of a part of the design of work itself. Oh, that's great. Well, listen, I know we're winding down for for part one of the interview here. Where where can people find the book? Where can people follow you if they want to dig into this? The book is called Work Better Together, and it's available for order on Amazon. So you can check it out there or really any, you know, check any of your book retailers, you know, you can ask them to order it for you if they don't have it in stock. But you can also find me on uh, social media. I'm on LinkedIn, Jen Fisher. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, JenFish23. And then a reminder that the podcast is Work Well, all one word, and that's on any podcatcher that you tune into podcasts for. Yeah, that's great. Well, everybody, please tune into part two. I can I can tell you the first question I want to know about is how to build well-being into work life instead of just on top of. So hopefully everybody will tune back in for that. Thanks for doing this, Jen.